0: Happy Thanksgiving. It is good to see you gathered together again. As God's people, I am very grateful for you as a church family. God has been at work in us, growing our love for one another, our love for our Christ, our desire to hear and grow through his word. We'll get to celebrate at the end of our service, our Thanksgiving for Christ's sacrifice for us as we come around this family table. Take your Bibles with me this morning. Let's return to Titus. We're in Titus chapter 3 this morning. Titus chapter 3. How is grace supposed to change us? How is it supposed to work itself out in our lives? Maybe what biblical examples come to your mind as you think of God's radical, life-changing grace? For me, one of the first examples that come to my mind is Zacchaeus. Here's a man devoted to greed, essentially theft, from his own countrymen. And yet he's curious to meet this Jesus of Nazareth. When Christ demonstrates his overwhelming kindness to him, a man who knows he does not deserve it. He is radically transformed from a man who always and is regularly taking to a man who is ready to give and let go of that thing that he had treasured. It's it's like a real life story of Scrooge. Or consider the author of our letter that we're studying. This is a brilliant man, educated, a powerful religious zealot devoted to stamping out this false religion that claims this impossible story of the resurrection of Jesus. In Paul's mind, no true Messiah of Israel would be so weak as to succumb to death at the hands of Roman oppressors. And yet when Jesus meets Saul on the road to Damascus, Paul is never the same again, is he? A murdering oppressor, A religious fanatic takes on the mantle of a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's a complete 180. Everything is different for Paul. Now, no matter what background you are saved from, you should see your own personal story of transformation through the grace of God as fitting right in alongside theirs your conversion may not have been as outwardly dramatic but it was no less miraculous it's no less miraculous because of the depth of your need of transformation all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way david writes in psalm 51:5 surely i was sinful at my very birth Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. In Romans 3.11, Paul informs us there is no one, not a single person that seeks after God. And yet his grace has transformed us as well. Now we have a new heart that does truly love and long for God, that wants to follow him. Sin is no longer a pleasure That we can wallow in without remorse and guilt and a desire to finally be rid of it. Our view of sin has been fundamentally reoriented. We desire to see and know God in his word. To grow up more and more like him. We want to talk to him. We want to be around his people who love him. Now who can create changes like this in your own life? In your own heart. If you don't see these kind of internal changes, is it possible that you've never trusted Christ as your savior? That you're not being shaped by his grace? Are you a new creation in Christ? Titus, the book of Titus would tell us that offer of salvation is given to you in Christ. It's offered to you this morning. If you would turn from your sin, And trust in Christ alone. But Paul is arguing passionately that God's saving grace through Christ will, it must, it can only ever continue to change us. Knowing the grace of God must be changing you. In chapter 2, Paul has described how God's saving grace shapes our relationships to one another within a church context, within a church family. And now chapter 3, he's going to face outward. He's going to emphasize that God's transforming grace in our lives requires us to demonstrate that same grace to others. Let's consider how he teaches us this as we look at our text this morning. Our text this morning is verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3, but let's get some context. We'll move back to chapter 2 and verse 11 and begin our reading there. This is the word of our God. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, for all kinds of people, training us to renounce or say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, eager, passionate for good works. Titus declared these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So Paul's given this grand demonstration, this explanation of the gospel, and now he will tell us again how it bears itself out. Verse 1 of chapter 3, remind them, continue to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. For because we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slave to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Let's ask for his help as we consider this text together. Father in heaven, we confess our need of your spirit to communicate to our minds, to our hearts, the truths of your word. Lord, we recognize them On the page, we can understand them. They can make sense to us. But what we need is help in applying it to our lives. We need your strength to put these things into practice. We love you and want to be more like you. And yet, there still is indwelling sin within us. And we struggle and we fight. So we ask for your grace this morning, not just to hear your word, but to be doers of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In this passage, Paul is going to provide very practical examples of how believers are to be ready for every good work. He's continuing to demonstrate that we're not saved by good works, but for good works. Think of what he wrote in Ephesians 2.10. We are God's handiwork, new spiritual creations created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is God's plan. The focus here now in chapter 3 is outward facing. Believers must be living lives of gospel distinction in a world dominated by sin. Think of the context in which Paul is teaching this. This is in a, a culture where not only are the lives of the society of unbelievers around them filled with all kinds of sin and ungodlessness, but the churches are filled with similar sins. The false teachers have been leading people astray. Now how? How should believers, Christians, be living in a society of non-Christians? This is immediately relevant for us, isn't it? How do we live in a society of non-Christians, even as it grows more and more hostile to our faith. This morning, we'll consider just two points. How grace reminds us to live in a fallen world. And secondly, of what we ourselves once were. So first, grace reminds us how to live in a fallen world. Verse 1 of chapter 3 begins with a present tense command. It will inform all the rest of the commands. They look like infinitives, to do something. But they're going to carry the weight of commands all the way throughout. He says, remind them. He intends for Titus to continue over and over. It's present tense. Remind God's people. Keep on reminding them how his grace shapes the way that they treat, how they think, how they interact with unbelievers. Paul's saying he's already covered this ground at some point. And yet, as is true with all biblical teaching, we need regular reminders of how God's grace should be shaping our lives. Consider, again, the context of these churches. They're incredibly unhealthy because of this wrong teaching. But also it's natural for every believer to have to fight his own tendency towards selfishness. Toward selfish desires. So first, Paul lays out our responsibility to governing authorities in verse 1. Christians must submit to government authorities. We worked through this subject in our study of First Peter several months ago in 1 Peter 2. Remember what Peter wrote there. He said, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Notice there in that first statement. In 1 Peter 2, he fleshes out all of the authorities that he's going to talk about, different kinds of authorities. But notice he says, every human authority. He continues, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors, more local leaders, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Notice Paul there, or Peter rather there, is saying the priority is that you identify yourself as servants of God, not as people trying to overthrow the government or fix it so it's better in this world. That's not our focus. These commands are stated very similarly in Romans 13, in 1 Timothy 2. They're essentially further explaining Jesus' statement to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. This reminder is of particular need for the Cretans. They're known for their lack of submission. One ancient Greek writer wrote of them that they were constantly involved in insurrections, murders, and destructive conflicts both Paul and Peter teach that Christians are not exempt because their lord is Christ from following from appropriate obligations toward the government. Because Jesus is our king doesn't mean we can rightly conclude we don't have to obey our human rulers, even human sinful rulers. Paul and Peter are writing this of an emperor who thinks he's god, who thinks he's deserving of worship. And he still says, obey, submit. I think it is uniquely difficult for us to hear the Bible's instruction for submission to ungodly leaders because we enjoy great privilege in this country. We actually are pretty unique in the history of civilizations, aren't we? And at times we take that for granted or we take liberties with that. When we hear a passage like this, we want to immediately talk about the exceptions. But what if... But Paul is not focused on the exceptions. In all the places we see the New Testament talk about government. Overwhelmingly, they say the priority is to obey in order to exalt God. God. consider how important these instructions have been for God's people throughout church history, especially in places with even worse governments and worse rulers. Scripture emphasizes that except in rare situations where the government says you don't obey God, Christians are to submit to their governments, even if that means we must suffer persecution as so many other believers do around the world. The second phrase he uses is that Christians must be obedient there in verse 1. God's people are not to be known as lawbreakers. We're not to be known for our zeal against our leaders, but for our zeal for Christ and his mission. And again, certainly in our country, we have great opportunities to be involved. Be involved wherever God leads you to in a, in a helpful, God-honoring, God-glorifying way. It's a wonderful privilege. We must not take lightly. But we must keep in mind that it is the gospel that our godless culture needs more than anything else. A right president cannot change anyone's heart. It doesn't turn sinners to Christ. We pray for peace. We pray for the opportunity from our government that we can continue to proclaim the gospel but ultimately we keep our eyes on the mission of our king. If we set ourselves against unbelievers who do not share our values, if we're regularly irritated and even angry with our culture, will we effectively demonstrate the value and power of the gospel to change lives? What are we revealing that we think the priority in life is? Will we demonstrate that Christ is worth following? Certainly we can pray, but we keep our focus on the primary thing that God has called us to. Paul concludes in verse 1, Christians are to be ready for every good deed. The last description here in verse 1 means that as Christians, we cannot just put on a passive posture to our world. We can sit back We can isolate ourselves and go about our lives without care for those around us. That is not how our Christ entered into this world passively, resigned to the suffering around us, resigned to leave people in their spiritual blindness. We're to be active and positively engaged in doing good to those around us that we might have a word to share about Christ. Jesus commanded us to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, so that the world may see our good deeds and glorify God. So often we tend toward one of three responses as we realize we live in a world that is hostile to our claims that Jesus is alone the way to God. We will either seek to flee, to fight, or to fit in. But Christians are meant to engage the lost around them in a way that adorns the doctrine of God, our Savior. Do you see Paul's passion, his conviction? This is to shape the way we think even of our governments, even when they're sinful governments. We must trust that God is bigger than the current opposition that we face or will face. Remind yourself of just how sovereign and powerful he is. Remind yourself of the accounts that God has given us throughout scripture of how he reigns supreme, even over the greatest of human governments. Remember in Esther, he's able to take the schemes of a wicked ruler and turn them back against that same man so that even the instrument of death that he has planned against believers comes back on him. Just as in the book of Daniel, he is able to humble to the dust the most powerful man on the planet. He sends him into a field as a beast. And he's able over and over to protect his people through the worst of human plans of execution. And remember Christ who submitted himself even to death, at the hands of an unjust government, that he might glorify God in that path by bringing us to salvation. Remember who your God is and why he sent his own son into a world like this. Be patient in his timing. God often does not work quickly, does he? Set your sights on the life to come. Embrace his mission for the world And be a godly influence where you can be. Then you'll be able to submit to the ungodly rulers of this age. Knowing that he alone is truly governing in every affair of mankind. Even when it looks like things are going into chaos. We have no reason as Christians to despair. This isn't the end of the story. This isn't all that God is doing. What we can see right now. And consider that submission to the fallen human authorities that God has ordained in our lives is evidence truly of our submission and trust of God himself. Are you demonstrating that you trust that God rules and reigns in a world that seems like it is running far and fast away from him? He still rules. Secondly, our responsibility to all non-Christians, In verse 2 now, there's a shift from a focus on civil authority to a focus on non-Christians in our secular culture. Notice who's in focus in the first and last commands of the verse. The focus begins with slandering no one, and it ends with showing courtesy to all men. Verse 2 is asking believers, how are you to relate to unbelievers? Now, before we go into any detail in this list, we need to acknowledge that this verse has virtually no impact or meaning if we have isolated ourselves so much that we have no relationship with unbelievers at all. If you never purposefully and intentionally give time to build a relationship with an unbelieving coworker or neighbor, you're shielding those in need around you from the truth of the gospel. We've said before, we won't be an evangelistic church until we as a body, are eager and ready and faithful in sharing the gospel. Paul is assuming in this verse that believers will be interacting regularly with unbelievers. He says Christians should slander no one, remind them to speak evil of no one. This does take wisdom to apply. And we see this here even in the letter of Titus. Here's what we mean. Paul tells Titus to rebuke false teachers. Rebuke them sharply, he says at one point. He says rebuke them three times. Jesus in his life demonstrated the proper balance between gentleness and righteous anger. There's certainly time and a place to confront false teachers and their teaching. So one commentator notes, Paul is not saying... By this admonition that Christians must be naive and never correctly evaluate and speak about the evil they see in anyone. Since he does this himself in chapter 1, 10 through 16. Rather, he is urging Christians to restrain their natural inclination to say the worst about people. Isn't that our inclination? Christians should be peaceable, secondly. Believers in Christ must avoid quarreling. I can think of no better application of this than how we interact online. It's created this false assumption because we don't see people face to face that we can say things more transparently or boldly or let out what's inside of us with less filter, with less grace. It's not always the case that way. Social media is not an evil in and of itself. But it does present certain dangers. Doesn't it? In a world that is taking sides and choosing an aggressive defensiveness on almost every opinion under the sun, how can believers represent themselves on social media in a way that exalts Christ and His grace? Is this truly the most helpful place to challenge friends about their views of the world? Does that show kindness? Would a face to face meeting be better? Maybe your interactions online can lead to a face-to-face conversation. Are you demonstrating peacefulness or a quarrelsome spirit? You really have to win every argument. Next, Christians should be gentle. Paul says, remind them to be gentle. One pastor and theologian described biblical gentleness as mildness in dealing with others, displaying a sensitive regard for others, and carefulness never to be unfeeling to the perceptions or perspective of others. Jerry Bridges concludes it takes strength, God's strength, to be truly gentle. Husbands and fathers, how often do we fall short of this expectation with our spouses and our children? How often do we lean into our aggressiveness or take authority and use it unrighteously? Are we modeling in our homes what it looks like to value the feelings, perspectives, and thoughts of our family members? Are we gentle at work with those with whom we disagree? Bridges writes again, A profile of gentleness as it should appear in our lives will first include actively seeking to make others feel at ease or restful in our presence. We should not be so strongly opinionated or dogmatic that others are afraid afraid to express their opinions in our presence. Instead, we should be sensitive to others' opinions and ideas. This is convicting, isn't it? How we desperately need the character of Christ to be worked deeper and deeper into the soil of our hearts. Lastly, Christians should be courteous to all. John Stott summarizes the last command. There's to be no limit either to our humble courtesy or to the people to whom we are to show it. Now, Paul's goal in these instructions is to help believers see that their behavior has a direct impact on how non-Christians view Jesus and his offer of salvation. These false teachers are giving the wrong impression. They're not representing Christ They're not glorifying him in any way. When believers live in the way that Paul is describing, they ensure that the only offense to unbelievers is that of the gospel, its claim of centrality and primacy. And then that careless speech, contentiousness, or arrogance is not standing in the way of that message. We're to live in such a way that our lives commend the gospel. That they put no unnecessary roadblock in the path of unbelievers. How are you engaged in doing good to those outside of the faith? How are you reaching out and demonstrating Christ's love to others? This may mean that you participate in one of the outreaches that we facilitate. Including the Greer Soup Kitchen. Shepherd's Gate Women's Home or or trunk-or-treat outreach, or seeking to develop a relationship with an unbelieving neighbor or co-worker. We provide specific opportunities for that, especially in the summer. But we must be outward-facing. The gospel is not meant to be hoarded for us. Rosaria Butterfield describes her life before she came to Christ in this way. She wrote, I considered myself an atheist, Having rejected my Catholic childhood and what I perceived to be the superstitious and illogical uh, illogic of the historic Christian faith, I found Christians to be difficult, sour, fearful, and intellectually unengaged people. In addition, since the age of 28, I had lived in a monogamous lesbian relationship and politically supported LGBT causes. I co-authored Syracuse University's first successful domestic partnership policy while working there as a professor of English and women's studies. I was terrified to associate on any level with a worldview that called me, my life, my community, my scholarly interests, and my relationships sin. Add to this, I was working on a book exposing the religious right from a lesbian feminist point of view. I approached the Bible with an agenda to tear it down because I firmly believed that it was threatening, dangerous, and irrational. Doesn't sound like she's going to be easy to convince, right? So what means did God use to break down her antagonism and aggression against Christ? a believer who is zealous to do good works in her life. I've heard that Rosaria said that the pastor and his wife who engaged her in conversation and then invited her into their own home had her over for dinner over 200 times before she finally came to Christ. Consider that kind of an investment. That's incredible, isn't it? Our gracious God wants to use our lives and conversations to compel unbelievers to consider his offer of salvation. How might you pursue others who desperately need to know Christ? Start small. Start with those within your sphere of influence. Be faithful. Number two, grace reminds us of what we once were. Paul now changes direction in verse 3. He writes, for we ourselves. Now what exactly has God saved us from besides eternal punishment and separation from him? That's what Paul's focusing on here in verse 3. He saved us from sin. From our own sinful, selfish choices to go our own way. Spurgeon wrote of this verse, do not let me talk about these things this morning while you listen to me without feeling. I want you to be turning over the pages of your old life and joining with Paul and the rest of us in our sad confession of former pleasure with evil. You see, if we would understand the incredible nature of God's mercy and kindness to us, we must know deeply our nature and need. Of his grace. As you hear this list in verse 3, don't think of everybody else who this applies to. Think of your heart. First, we learn that sin deceives. We ourselves were once foolish. All of us, without exception, were ignorant, without spiritual understanding or desire. This is not about intellect. This is about spiritual willingness to see Christ as first and foremost and worthy. Unbelievers do not see him as worthy. Secondly, sin disobeys. We ourselves were once disobedience. We wanted our own way and demanded it. The fool has said in his heart, no, God. It's not just that that is an atheist statement. It's a statement of will. No, I won't go your way. I won't follow you. Our natural bent from the moment we take our first breath is to carve out a space where we can declare our own rights and supremacy. In our hearts, we need no authority. We don't need parents. We need no other human authority. We're disobedient and unsubmissive to God and every other authority. We know this is true. Just just watch little children. Watch them for just a few moments. It's okay to notice that they're sinners. Because when we do that, we're recognizing this is what I'm like. No one teaches them to smash their siblings' toys and rip apart or rip them out of their siblings' hands. No one has to tell them how to do that. There's no classes that we give for that. That comes very naturally, doesn't it? No one has to teach them how to be angry and throw a fit when they don't get their way. No one has to teach them how to fight or to talk back to their parents. Where does that come from? It comes from the nature of every human to self-rule. Just like Satan, we think we deserve worship. We deserve centrality. We all have a heart determined toward self rule the next phrase we ourselves were once led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures notice that strong word they're slaves sin diverges it turns us away and it dictates we by nature wander off after our own choices and pursuits we pursue what we think and feel we want in the moment And again, just like little children, we have no idea what we really need. But it's a desire that's right in front of us, and we chase it. Mankind has no idea what will truly satisfy his soul. And he continually runs after the wrong thing. And our world tells you, go for it. Be true to yourself. Whatever your heart says, however you want to identify yourself That's who you are. What foolishness and deception. What danger and sadness that kind of thinking leads toward. Our hearts are self-deceptive and overwhelmingly bent on sinning. Beyond our own understanding, scripture says. Sin makes you stupid. That doesn't mean it makes you unintelligent. It makes you think this thing right out in front of me is best and ultimate and good and will make me happy and there couldn't be anything farther from the truth. It only will leave you into entrapment and misery. Our sinful, selfish hearts make a fool of us every time we choose to follow them, don't they? Paul continues, We ourselves were once passing our days in malice and envy. Sin detests and it desires. Are we truly all that different from little children that demand to have what someone else has and unleashes his or her fury on that person who stands in the way? Now certainly as we mature, as we grow up, as we fit into society, we don't express it outwardly this way. But just consider the malice and envy that we see on the news and our social media feed that we see in our own minds. And hearts have you ever seen an adult throw a temper tantrum I bet if you think about it you have have you ever thrown one think of the destruction that's unleashed on a place like in a place like Twitter other media today when someone speaks or acts in a way that's deemed unacceptable the thought is they shouldn't even exist that's why we have something called cancel culture they're out of here The hostility and outrage is incredible. But you don't have to post these things publicly to recognize resentment and envy in your own heart. How do you respond when you're treated unfairly, when you're wounded by a cutting comment, or slighted unexpectedly? James writes, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? He answers, don't they come from the evil desires? war within you? Proverbs thirteen ten says, by pride comes nothing but conflict or strife. Finally, sin destroys. We were once hated by others and hating one another. When we give ourselves over to our own selfish pursuits, we end up seeing others as our enemy. We are angry with them for being in the way. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to the judgment. But I say that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, I think these descriptions here in verse 3 raise two questions for us. We may be thinking, this list seems a little bit extreme, doesn't it? I mean, even before I was saved, I don't think these descriptions fit me. Or you may be thinking, I was saved when I was young. I wasn't allowed to behave like this list describes. So the first question this list brings up is in what ways are we supposed to identify with these sins? Paul is trying to tell us, remember who you really are. By nature, a self consumed sinner who's destined to be consumed by his own sinfulness. We must allow Scripture to inform us, not our warm feelings about ourselves, not what we would like the perception to be. We must allow Scripture to tell us what we're really like and show us the depth of our depravity. This doesn't mean the expressions of our sin will look the same as everyone else. That we have outwardly committed the same sinful acts as others. Or that we've behaved as wickedly as possible. But that's not the point. The point is our hearts. Every single one of us. Our hearts are desperately sick. Notice that Paul includes himself and Titus in the list. We ourselves this is what we're like as sinners. We're sinful all the way down to our core. And now we come to the beauty of the gospel. Paul says so plainly in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. We must first understand our own deep personal need of Christ. John Newton was a drunken sailor. We know his testimony well. A wicked slave trader. But by God's grace, he was radically transformed into a minister of the gospel. He wrote a text in bold letters and put it over the mantle in his study so that he could see it regularly, daily. It was Deuteronomy 15.15, which says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. We must never forget that we are unworthy recipients of God's mercy. Why does Paul place the list here? Why focus on how sinful we were before we were saved? How does that help? That sounds depressing. Paul places this here to remind us we have no righteousness of our own in which to be arrogant. We're made of the same stuff as all the other sinners. We're no better than anyone else. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. The only difference now between us and our unbelieving friends and neighbors is that we have experienced God's grace by His mercy. We're not better than anyone. Verses 4 through 7 are going to explain this as well. We ourselves were once sinners and enslaved to sin, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness if we remember just how merciful God has been to us, we will be all the more eager to share this same incredible message with others who are in need of it. So we must secondly understand the same need of Christ in others. That's why Paul is telling us this. He's arguing in these verses that Christians must be good citizens and good neighbors because we are so aware and so grateful of being forgiven of our sins. If you yourself receive God's mercy when you deserve judgment, then show God's kindness, his love, his mercy to the unbelievers in your life when they don't deserve it. So our passage urges us, it teaches us that God's grace and mercy in your life is to shape and control your view and behavior toward others. How can we possibly Obey these commands when this isn't within our nature. When as we've heard this text, we recognize, I still fail in these ways. I'm I'm not what God wants me to be yet. How do we obey? The passage brings great conviction, and it should. That's good for us. Because these prohibitions and commands describe the way we naturally think and feel and respond. So how do we obey these? Not by mustering up more self-will. Certainly we must be disciplined and intentional and purposeful in pursuing godliness. But we must keep looking to Christ. We must pursue and ask for his grace. The same grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to likeness. We must remind ourselves again and again of his loving kindness and mercy to us and what that demands of us today. We show grace to others when we understand just how much grace God gave me. When we drift away from who we really are as sinners, what we really deserve eternally, and just how merciful God has been to us, then we can treat others as beneath us, as obstacles, as irritations when we drift away. We must meditate again and again on how Jesus has received us. Church family, can I tell you, this is the Christian's secret key to every relationship. Remember how he treated you and you treat others that way by his grace. Remind yourself of who you truly are apart from Christ and of just how much he gave up to redeem his enemy, then let that shape how you respond to others. That's hard to apply, isn't it? But it's possible. Our lives are to be living proof of visible display of what God's favor to a sinner can truly do. We've heard descriptions of God's transforming grace throughout the sermon, that grace is offered to you this morning. Will you turn to him, turn from your sin, and ask for help to be what God has called you to be in Christ. Let his grace continue to work in your life as you live a life shaped by that kindness that's so available. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we are humbled again as we see in your word what we really are like. If we're being honest, I don't believe it's too hard for us to recognize ourselves in verse 3. To recognize our hearts. It saddens us. And yet even in that, Lord, we can be very selfish. Selfish. We're sad that we don't look as good as we want to look. We're disappointed that we're not as good as we think we are. But Lord, may the truth humble us. May it lead us to the gospel. If we don't recognize our sin, our sinfulness, we can't see Jesus for how beautiful he truly is. Help us in understanding our sinfulness for us to recognize Christ's mercy and grace and love for his enemies. And then let that love work itself out as we seek to treat others as you've treated us. Give us grace as we respond, each of us in our own hearts, as we recognize our need to turn to you again. In Jesus' name. Could we have every head